I, I mean, I would go so far as to say is it is the most important aspect of, of living a healthy life and performing at your peak. I think sleep is not only above everything else, but I think it's just leaps and bounds above everything else. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 10 of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you haven't listened to the show before, uh, the quick rundown or the idea is that this podcast is devoted to optimizing the physical, emotional, mental, and environmental health and wellness of law enforcement officers and first responders all over the world. We tackle any subject that might improve our wellness and our commitment to ourselves, our loved ones, and of course, the communities that we serve. I, uh, my story is that I am a 10-year veteran of a sheriff's department in Southern California. I'm currently a patrol sergeant, and I am going through a process of trying to get better. And by better, I mean better at everything. I'm trying to be a better uh, cop. I'm trying to be uh, in better shape. I'm trying to be in a better mental space. I'm trying to be a better dad, a better husband, uh, a better son, all those things. And this process uh, really started uh, at the beginning of the year. When I just had enough, I couldn't, uh, didn't want to take any more of that sedentary and sort of stuck feeling that I was dealing with. And so I sought out a lot of experts and today is one of those experts. And when I decided to come up with this project, uh, this guy was at the top of the list of the people that I wanted to talk to. He, uh, is well known in the CrossFit community and in the paleo community. Um, he's a TEDx speaker and he's, uh, he's an all-around uh, great guy. And he's been very receptive. He's very supportive of law enforcement. And you'll hear that in this episode. Uh, and today's guest is Dr. Kirk Parsley. Now, obviously, he's a doctor. And he specializes in uh, sleep medicine. But he took a, a rather interesting route to get into uh, why he chose sleep medicine. And you'll hear that in the story. But it starts with him. Uh, in buds because uh, Dr. Parsley is a former Navy SEAL. So if there's a guy who knows about sleep deprivation, it's someone who went through uh, buds and the sleep deprivation that that entails and then joining the teams and he spent six years in the teams and then he went to medical school. We all know doctors are, are, are as sleep deprived as we are. And so he knows what he's talking about. And I know that I am very interested in this episode and I'm very uh, excited to get the chance to talk to him because Sleep to me has become uh, a paramount issue for me. I just, I'm on night shift right now, and I do not sleep well uh, during the day. I just can't make it happen. I have uh, the blackout curtains, and I have the fan going, but I just don't sleep well. And that's just part of the challenges of being a husband and a father, and I know a lot of people can relate to that. It's not easy for me to get, uh, it's almost impossible for me to get eight hours of sleep a night, and I'm often at about six, maybe five hours a night. And you'll see or you'll hear from Dr. Parsley why that is so bad for us. So we got to find out ways to mitigate that. And that's what we talk about today. We talk about why sleep's important, the problems that you can expect from it, and um, ways that we can manage and mitigate the lack of sleep in the, in the realities that we function in. Uh, so a great episode, a lot of good information. And at the end of the episode, we talk about, uh, we, get, we offer a special discount on a new product that Dr. Parsley has that he developed for the Navy SEALs that he's now bringing to market. And uh, we'll share that code at the end of the program. Now, a couple notes about this episode real quick. Uh, this was uh, the first episode I've recorded of this 
podcast uh, using Skype. So we are at the whims of the interwebs uh, for some of the connection. And you'll hear it cut out a couple times uh, for a brief second. There's nothing we can do about that. Um, not a big deal. But you'll hear that the audio quality is not up to par with what I hope to bring to you and what you're typically, if you listen to the show, what you've come to expect in the terms of the good quality audio that we get. It's just not there because we're talking over the Internet. Uh, in addition to that, um, as luck would have it, Dr. Parsley's street was being repaved right at the beginning, <laughs> right in the middle of the uh, of the episode. So you'll hear the trucks beeping in the background and some of the scraping and and the movement with that. It's it's not too evident. It is uh, it is there in the background. It is a little annoying, but it's well worth uh, ignoring that and getting through it to listen to what he's talking about. Because if you're like me. I was so focused on what he was saying that I barely noticed the beeping until I was here editing it in post. So anyway, just be aware that uh, we do. Have, there is some sounds, and we're uh, I'm doing everything I can to make sure that the audio quality uh, is 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 as best as we can possibly be. You know, this show doesn't have any sponsors, but it does have friends of the show, and certainly uh, Traver Bohm and Eric Malzone, uh, guests on the show. Uh, and the owners of CrossFit Pacific Coast and Gravitas Performance Labs are, are certainly two of the two of the biggest. But we also have someone else that I need to thank uh, and also uh, get his name out there. And that's uh, Jeff over at Fresh Tracks Designs. Uh, Jeff is a, a pretty hardcore, badass CrossFitter. And we met through the gym, but he's also just happens to be a fantastic designer. Uh, he's both a graphic designer and an industrial designer. And he makes uh, some pretty amazing products. And he's the one who came up with the uh, logo for the squad room. He's a um, very talented guy. And he really went to went to town with that logo. And I'm so proud of that logo that we have out there that you see in iTunes or on Stitcher uh, when it shows up on your phone. Um, much of our entire look is built around that logo. So anyway, I, I love that logo so much. Jeff really hooked us up. If... Uh, you or uh, someone you know, like your union, is looking for a design or needs a new logo, that kind of thing, I encourage you to go check out Fresh Tracks Designs at Fresh Tracks. Tracks is T R A X Design.com. Fresh Tracks Design.com. Talk to Jeff. Let him know you listen to the squad room and you support, uh, support his efforts because he certainly supports ours. He's a big fan and big supporter of law enforcement, and he did uh, a, lot of, a lot of great work for us. All right, so without further ado, Here's Dr. Parsley. Dr. Kirk Parsley, thanks for joining us on uh, on the Squad Room. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, actually. So I appreciate that. So um, one of the things that I've been doing or trying to do since starting this project has been to go out and seek out experts in their fields, uh, but more importantly, experts who have walked the walk or uh, have, have talked the talk, so to speak. Um, you are certainly that guy when it comes to sleep deprivation and sleep optimization. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your history, how you came to find this to be such an important topic, and uh, where you first were when you realized that uh, lack of sleep was probably not a good idea? Yeah, yeah, that's... Um that that's a pretty common question and, and the story is very long and convoluted and an interest in not taking up your whole show. I'll, I'll give the reader's digest version of it. But, um, uh, as, as some of your folks may know, I was, um, I was formerly a Navy SEAL and, uh, got, you know, I did about, uh, uh, six and a half years and, and, and then I got out and went to college and, um, 
had had plans of doing something sort of medically related. I thought probably physical therapy or athletic training or something. That's just kind of where my interest had, had been. I'd been an you know an athlete my whole life, and then obviously being a SEAL is kind of performance related. So uh, eventually ended up going to medical school. Uh, decided on going to medical school. Went to the uh, literally as I was applying to medical schools, I found out that the military had their own school, and uh, I said, well they're going to pay me to go to medical school instead of me paying somebody else. Um, you know, and I was already married and had kids. So it made perfect sense. And I knew I'd get back to the SEAL teams as the doctor there. And that, um, that was something I was passionate about doing. Um, just because I, I didn't really feel like we, you know, we got any, uh, true medical attention or, uh, even any reasonable coaching, um, you know, compared to even just, you know, high school football or something, you know, that I'd been exposed to before. Um, so, you know, that all kind of went to plan, and I got back to the SEAL teams at a very opportune time, the um, uh, SOCOM, which is all special forces, uh, you know, had just um, released this big budget to develop these, uh, what we were calling tactical athlete programs, which was essentially, you know, what uh, what one would expect um, any uh, professional sports team to have or in uh, very similar um um, assets that you would uh, apply to a special forces military organization that you know have so heavily re- relies on physical and cognitive performance, um, and so you know I, I just I literally got there like you know the month that all of this was coming to fruition that had been work the people had been working on it for about five years and we had this budget and they said you know go build this clinic. Um, go build, build this sports medicine clinic and we're going to build this performance center right down the street here, like you know, a few hundred meters down the road. And then, you know, we want you involved in hiring all these people. And so I got to, you know, be a big part of building this program that was focused around, uh, you know, rehabilitation uh, from surgery, rehabilitation from injury, and then some well, what we call prehab, which is, you know, just sort of preparing guys for the rigors of the job, um, you know, biomechanically and so forth so that they don't get injured, correcting muscle deficits, weaknesses, you know, and uh, mobility issues and all that. Um, and then we worked hand in hand with the performance center, um, which, you know, had, you know, we hired our first nutritionist, our first exercise physiologist, our first strength and conditioning coach, um, all the things that you would have thought this would have had for at least a decade or something. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I brought ortho rounds in and pain clinic rounds in and uh, some neurologists and acupuncturists. And we had just, you know, great resources. And then I was the least knowledgeable sports medicine person around because I'd hired all these great physical therapists and trainers and coaches. And, um, so in true military fashion and, you know, DO, DOD, and I'm sure LEO fashion, what do you do with the least qualified guy? You put him in charge. And so then I was, <laughs> then I was supervising all of these guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, you know, my, my job was day to day doctoring essentially at that point. I mean, I, I supervised the running of the clinic, but, uh, you know, all the, all the, employees that made it work um and other military members that made it work were uh you know you know uh very professional and very capable of of doing it without me so i was uh, just kind of a, a figurehead oversight i think um but what would happen is because my office was in the sports medicine facility um 
you know, guys would go get their rehab. They'd get, you know, they'd get this ice, they'd get this mob, they'd get this work done, get, you know, they'd do a little bit in our performance gym where we're kind of like trying to correct behavior or movements and so forth. And then they would stop by my office and they'd say, Hey, Kirk, what are you up to? And, it, you know, it started with guys my age who knew me uh, by name and reputation and uh, had known me when I was a SEAL. And they'd come and close the door and say, Hey, let me tell you what's really going on with me. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the military, um, and, and I know this is true in a lot of professions, and in, in the military, guys are really hesitant to be completely uh, forthcoming with what's going on with them because they're always afraid that they may be, um, you know, put on the bench while this little thing is being worked through. Um, right. But they trusted me um, inherently because I was I was one of them. I was the team. I was one of the team members, and so they knew I. They knew I would keep everything confidential um, that I could. And if, obviously, if they told me they were, you know, out creating, you know, um, committing, uh, you know, serial killings every week, then I would I would have had to <laughs> would have had to come out with that. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, I agreed, of course, that I would keep everything confidential. And with, you know, what they described to me, um, you know, in, in my naive medical um, knowledge at that time, uh, and and I say naive not to not to represent lack of experience, but just um, really uh, sort of the indoctrinated mainstream view of medicine. What they were describing sounded uh, almost identical to what we call metabolic syndrome, which is sort of pre-diabetes. So it's the beginning of kind of the metabolic breakdown that we see in um, you know the you know 30s. 30s to 40s, uh, you know, people get 30 to 40 pounds overweight, and you know they've been sedentary now for, you know, uh, 10, 10 to 20 years. Um, you know their blood glucose is, uh, you know, re- rising. Their fasting insulin is rising. Their sex hormones are dropping. Their inflammation is increasing. Their oxidation is increasing. Their thyroid function is decreasing. Their, you know, cholesterol markers are changing. Their, you know, uh, blood pressure. Um, and then also a lot of just mood stuff, right? Just, you know, I don't feel that motivated. I don't feel, um, you know, I don't feel like I can really push myself as hard as I used to. And, you know, some possible issues around emotionality, feeling, you know, feeling more prone to emotional outbursts, either in anger or sadness, um, possibly some depression type symptoms, although, you know, nobody was re- meeting clinical depression, um, but, you know, it all really fit with this metabolic kind of derangement that you would expect in, you know, I don't know, a 40, you know, a 45 year old, 40 pound overweight used car salesman who sits at a desk all day. You're like, you know, that that's 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 sort of the the uh, probably non-politically correct, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, garden variety uh, um, image that comes up in my mind with this. And you know, a lot of these guys were in great shape, you know, they, they still have, you know, seven, 8% body fat. They're lean. They work out every day. They eat well. And it just didn't make any sense. Um, and so I started, you know, I, I started just because I didn't have anything else to start with. I just started pulling a bunch of labs and saying, well, you know, let's see if this really is metabolic syndrome. And maybe we have some epidemic of metabolic syndrome that's, uh, you know, atypical in this population. And 
um, I pulled out these enormous sets of labs that um, the Navy and Bureau of Medicine uh, weren't really happy with me for. After a while, I, I kind of got um, um, my my hand spanked a little bit for for you know, being a little too aggressive with labs. Um, but you know, I did these really really robust labs so, um, sets. Uh, I think there was like 95 or 98 markers on there I was looking at, and I had learned all this by um, just working with a bunch of functional medicine, integrative medicine, hormonal modulation, kind of A4M type docs, um, reading a bunch of books, going to conferences and, you know, doing proctorships under, you know, smart guys who dealt with these types of issues with middle-aged men. Um, and, um, you know, they they fit the pattern exactly. Like they, like their labs looked exactly like you would expect. Um, and, it didn't make any sense because all of the interventions that you would ordinarily do for that, you know, changing, uh, you know, changing their lifestyle, changing their diets, you know, changing how much they exercise, like, you know, all of these things they were doing already, they were already doing everything correctly. So where did, where did I go with this? Um, and I, I guess to make a long story longer, um, I, I, I said this is going to be readers as I just heard, and it shows you how pathetically long the story usually is. Um, no, it's good. <laughs> uh, the uh, you know, the one thing that was really just kind of an aside. It was it was it wasn't any information that I and that I initiated uh, um, discovery of. It was just kind of an aside. Guys telling me, you know, that they weren't sleeping great and that they were using uh, sleeping aids. They were using Ambien, um, Lunesta, you know, drinking alcohol, sometimes doing you know both, like taking a sleep. You know, a sleep aid taking three to four times the recommended dosages of that, chasing that down with a couple of cocktails, and then they were only getting three or four hours of sleep, and then they'd get up and just feel wide awake and say, well, I'm just going to go to the gym and work out really hard so that I'll be really tired tonight, and then tonight I'll sleep well. And I would say, all right, how long have you been trying that? And they're like, five years. And I'm like, all right, well, today today's probably the day it's going to work, so just keep on, keep on, <laughs> keep on pushing that plan. Um, and so... You know, and, and I'd had sort of some anecdotal reports from the leadership, the forward deployed leadership going like, hey, you know, like 75 percent of, of my guys are using Ambien on a regular basis. Like um, and, you know, why? Why is that? You know, essentially, they don't know if it's bad or not. They're, you know, they're SEALs. They're not doctors. They don't. Um, it's, it's not their world, but it doesn't seem like a good thing. And so I had to start educating myself on sleep and that's really where all of this came from. And it wasn't really, um, you know, that I had some passion for sleep or sleep physiology, but it, as, as I started digging more and learning more about sleep, I just realized that sleep could literally or lack of sleep rather could literally explain every single symptom and every single lab finding that I came across. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't, I, I take it back. I didn't know it was that severe at the beginning, but I saw a lot of correlation at the beginning. And now, you know, eight years later or whatever, that I've really been digging down this rabbit hole. I honestly don't think that there, that there is a, a physiologic, um, symptom or lab finding, um, any type of biomarker that isn't affected by sleep. Um, and I, I mean, I would go so far as to say is it is the most important aspect of, of living a healthy life and performing at your peak. I think sleep is not only above everything else, but I think it's just leaps and bounds above everything else. And, 
um, you know, this is coming from a guy who sleep deprived himself as much as anybody else has. You know, I, I spent, um, you know, I spent a lot of my time as a SEAL sleep deprived. I spent all of college sleep deprived. I spent all of medical school sleep deprived. And I spent, you know, the, you know, the first few years after medical school and postgraduate training sleep deprived as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not shaking my fingers and you know, you know, telling people you know they're they're stupid for doing what they're doing. I've I've been in that boat too, and it's not until you really start looking at um, everything that that sleep affects that you realize, wow, I, I'm really doing myself a disservice by trying to you know be a little more efficient by cutting a few hours of sleep out of my life. Um, it's just absolutely the probably the worst thing you can do. But, Apart from maybe you know taking crystal meth or something, that's probably the worst. But <laughs> <laughs> which which hopefully this audience is not doing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. You know, it seems to me that uh, this. I mean, we, we all grew up with our parents telling us we needed you know our eight hours and and you needed to go to bed on time and, and be well rested. But it, as adults, we seem to forget that. But even yeah, when uh, did we lose that? <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I remember my parents harping on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. and obviously, you know, I mean, the one one thing that uh, law enforcement has in common with the military is that, uh, you know, unpredictable schedule. And, you know, you guys go out on a mission and it's, you can't you're not running a 312 shift when you go out uh, with the teams. Right. right. Of course, I mean, you go out until it's done. Right. And the same similar things with us uh, and also, you know, the rotating shift work and all that. And so I, yeah. you just, when you were talking, you were rattling off all sorts of symptoms that I have yep. and that it took me a long time to get to be, uh, you know, the, the short version of my own story is I went to my doc, my doctor, my, my general practitioner and explained all my problems or the problems I was having sleeping. And he, and he did exactly what you said. He gave me Ambien. Right. I said, we'll try that. And that was horrible. So he's like, well, I'll try Lunesta. So I tried that. And uh, I ended up having to do my own research and uh, in hindsight was giving him every symptomology of or every symptom of sleep apnea. Uh-huh. And so it took a long road to go out and get tested. And sure enough, I have severe sleep apnea mm-hmm. and went and saw the, the, a sleep specialist and finally was able to get on that road. It's It doesn't seem like it's still a recognized um, issue that the doctors, I mean, it, it's kind of struck me that the first assumption was I needed a drug rather than I just, I, I needed something else or, or I just needed to sleep more. Yeah. I mean, that's just like, um, you know, that's not unique to sleep. It's just the fallacy of the way the medical education program was, has turned out. And I don't think there is any, you know, nefarious mastermind up at, you know, big pharma, like planning out how this was going to roll out over the next 40 to 50 years. But, you know, essentially what's happened is, um, you know, our definitely our parents. Uh, you know, grew up in a generation where they believed that no matter what went wrong with them, uh, as they grew older, medicine, science was going to have a cure. They were going to have a pill that they could take or a procedure they were going to do. And um, you know, science was you know, medical science was kind of on the hook to to perform in that arena. And you know, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you know, I I believe you know there's there's some uh, there's, there's probably some big issues, <laughs> big issues there, big political issues there that, that I won't get into. But, you know, the, the, I think the intent was always good. It was, you know, we're, we're going to try to figure out ways to, um, 
know, fix things that commonly go wrong by creating these little tricks, uh, these little chemical tricks in people's bodies. And we all thought that would work out pretty well because we were so smart, you know, because we had figured out, you know, uh, a vaccine to smallpox or and polio. And so, like, you know, that, you know, the game was on and we were going to figure out how to fix everything. Um, and, you know, the problem with these little tricks and, you know, well, there's a lot of uh, sort of the millennial population running around right now doing what they're calling biohacking. Right? There's this whole biohack. Well, it's, a, it's the same thing the pharmaceutical industry has been doing forever. It's a, you know, they're, they're doing biohacks. They're trying to come up with little tricks. Um, but, you know, as you alluded to this, I had this I had the same problem with the seals. I mean, one thing one, one of the big issues with the seals is that. Um, there was a very, very limited number of medications I could even put them on that wouldn't disqualify them. And it would be beyond my control once they were on this medication. The military would know about it. They would be flagged. And, you know, the technical, like, you can't have guys on Thorazine carrying machine guns. You know, like, uh, just, you know, take this, uh, you know, take these antipsychotic drugs uh, with you and, and, you know, and, and just go ahead and forward deploy and do combat like that. Nobody's going to buy off on that. But if, yeah. when I started looking into the medical literature about how do I improve people's sleep, sadly, that's actually where it goes. Like it, it starts with, you know, it starts with things like Ambien and then you just get to progressively more and more sedating drugs. And so you're literally talking about putting people on antipsychotics. And, you know, the one thing that that stood out to me and, you know, I, I've, um, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't call myself a rebel, but I've always just kind of been a nonconformist and uh, kind of all the guy, you know, the guy that always was asking why in, in class and um, really upsetting the professors. Uh, but, um, you know, what you know, what stood out to me is, you know, the, the, the general treatment. So I, I gave you sort of the litany of complaints and um, that the SEALs would come into me with. And you know, standard medical care would be, okay, well, I'll give you Ambien for your sleep issue, and then I'll give you Viagra for your sex drive issue, and then I'll give you this antidepressant for your mood issue, and then I'll give you, uh, you know, this statin, like Lipitor, I'll give you this for your cholesterol issue, and then I'll give you, you know, whatever, uh, thyroid medication, or maybe testosterone, uh, you know, and I'll, and I'll do all these things, and I'm like, it, the problem isn't that they have an Ambien deficiency. They don't have a Prozac deficiency. They don't have a Lipitor deficiency, right? There's something metabolically going on. There's some big overarching problem. But the problem is the way, medi the, way the medical profession has been taught. Um, you know, you've had all these universities professors for the past four or five decades who spend all of their required research time researching pharmaceuticals and then they teach the next generation of scientists and doctors uh, what they know and I don't and again I don't think it's a masterminded nefarious plan but if, if all you've ever studied is Lipitor you know for 20 years and then people want to talk to you about cholesterol issues what do you think the answer is going to be right it's like you're carrying around a hammer everything looks like a nail um, and it, I, that's just kind of where it's ended up and now with you know, the way medical, you know, the financing of the medical healthcare system has gone, you know, it's just, it's so driven towards efficiency. And literally part of my medical education was, um, we, you know, was them teaching me tactical ways to cut off my patients um, and limit them to one complaint because I didn't have time to deal with more than one complaint. And if they came in with six complaints, I had to you know, get them to prioritize and just tell me one thing and then I'll work on that one thing. And then they had to make, you know, five more appointments for the other things that they had going on. 
And of course, you know, the way the system goes, especially, you know, in, in the military and law enforcement, when you, you know, when you're on chaotic schedules and you have court and you have shift work and, you know, it might take you months to get back in to see a doctor. And that's, it was, it was you know, it was just a way of practicing medicine that I didn't agree with. Um, and the, you know, my peers and colleagues don't agree with that method. Um, but unfortunately, we're kind of outside the mainstream. Um, you know, people have to be willing to come in and sort of pay us cash for service because we can't operate within this six minute window, which is literally what what a doctor is supposed to spend with the patient is um, about six minutes face to face and about, you know, four to five minutes charting for that patient and then moving on to the next patient. And you can't get anything handled in that length of time. And when you go yeah. like when you go in to talk to your doctor with all these symptoms that, that you're talking about, he was just overwhelmed. And you're like, all right, well, I'll just. I'll grab this one uh, sleep. Same thing here. Take this pill. You know, there I feel like I've done something good for the day. And again, I don't think it's not laziness on his part. Um, it's just the system he's been, you know, brought into, and, and the way the game has to be played in order for the system to keep working the way it is. And hopefully, you know, the whole thing will collapse and we'll rebuild it. Um, you know, f- from a, for a more practical standpoint. But we'll see where all that goes. Um, but you know, the sleep apnea that you brought up is, is really intriguing. Um, sleep diseases, there's actually 82 uh, sleep diseases. Most physicians can probably name off um, two or three of them um, at best. Um, a lot of physicians don't ever prescribe, you know, don't ever recommend sleep studies and so forth. But um, again, it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned in, in my research over the years, um, and I don't mean I'm performing research, but my reading of people's research um, uh, literature review uh, is that um, there's a very, very high correlation between um, chronically chaotic sleep, which is what I call what what law enforcement does and and the military does. That's a chaotic sleep um, uh, sleep environment or chronic sleep deprivation. Somebody like a truck driver, um, you know, or somebody who works, you know, just really long night shifts, hospital workers oftentimes. Um, uh, there's a huge, huge correlation between having those types of jobs and sleep environments and having obstructive sleep apnea. So, uh, you know, is it that, uh, you know, it, it seems very unlikely that, um, say, the, the truck driving community has self-selected out for people who are more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea, you know, are going to become truck drivers. That seems mm-hmm. that seems a very unlikely concept. Um, but people who you know chronically use stimulants to stay awake and push themselves and you know have sedentary lifestyles are more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. The same thing is true in the military. Like the the seals have an insanely disproportionate uh, amount of obstructive sleep apnea. For especially for their body habits. I mean, if somebody is like really kind of overweight, heavy fat, has a lot of, you know, carries a lot of fat around their neck and upper chest and, um, you know, and, you know, they sleep on their back and then it makes sense. Everything would collapse. But, you know, about 50 percent of um, people with obstructive sleep apnea these days are young you know, or are fit and lean people who have completely normal body habits and often, oftentimes they're extraordinarily fit, um, you know, because they're, they're military guys or law enforcement or DOJ or, you know, um, people that have, that really value their performance and have been working hard to stay on top of it. So, um, you know, I, I think that the, you know, sleep depriving your 
sleep sleep deprivation in itself predisposes you to a lot of these a lot of these sleep disorders just because um, you know you're messing with by sleep depriving yourself you're messing with the very system that you're supposed to be using to repair your body every day and that repair isn't happening yeah and you know um, maybe a good thing if you don't in, in you, if you can walk uh, people through, if this is the first time they're hearing about the issues of sleep, and they go, "Well, yeah, of course I'm tired. I, you know, work nights or courts or whatever," but can you tell people and demonstrate what happens as you become sleep deprived and that snowball effect as you go, and what happens to your body, and why why you end up with these things like, you know, the depression and the and everything else? Yeah. So there's um, I, there there's a there's kind of I kind of divide this into two pathways, and not because uh, I'm a big pathway guy. Uh, I I don't believe in sort of dividing the body up into systems or health into systems. But you know, for the sake of easy conversation, I usually um, talk about the symptoms of sleep and and sort of a cognitive capacity, um, a, a cognitive slash performance capacity, and then uh, you know the other is sort of the disease risk um, or deleterious effects of uh, on your body and your overall health and wellness. And, you know, what we, you know, we, I, I don't want to pretend like all of the answers to sleep are out there. Um, the, the one really positive thing that I would say, though, is that this, the science of sleep is amazingly consistent. It's not like nutritional science where everybody's bickering that no you know this diet's better than that diet and carbohydrates are bad or fats bad or you know all these people you know scientific camps essentially that are at odds with each other the sleep research is and the sleep literature is amazingly consistent right there's there's not a sleep researcher out there saying oh no sleep less and you'll perform better like the, or sleep less and you'll have less disease there's there's never has this occurred right uh, there's not a single body of evidence out there, a single research trial saying that that's a good idea. Um, you know what? You know what? Some people are sort of bickering about is where's the threshold? How far can we push this without having major obvious signs and symptoms of disease? Not a great idea. But you know when you when you sleep deprive yourself, there's there's several things going on. One of the most obvious is what we all feel is that we you know we wake up obviously when we feel tired, we feel cognitively slow. And in fact, if we, in fact, if we test people, I'm sorry about this noise, but as luck would have it, they're literally uh, repaving the street right in front of my house today. <laughs> and they were doing it yesterday, and I was like, well, I'm glad they're doing this uh, today because they have that podcast tomorrow, and it's just literally right outside my door. There's this huge machine grinding up all the asphalt, pumping it into, into a dump truck. So bad luck. Um, anyways, uh, so we, we feel tired the next day. Okay, that's an obvious symptom. Everybody knows that. Uh, we and we feel sort of cognitively slow. Maybe our memory isn't quite as sharp. Uh, you know, we just feel a little foggy. And interestingly enough, if you test this concept, it 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 bears out to be true. And again, all clinical research. If you sleep deprive somebody and then you give them a neurocognitive test, like completing sentences or you know memorizing word list or reaction time, how quickly they can respond to a color popping up on the screen and hit a keyboard. Um, and you take somebody who's sleep deprived and they will perform, you know, exactly like somebody who has a finite amount of, you know, alcohol intoxication. So you can 
there, there's very, very strong correlates. If you sleep deprive yourself this much, you're performing as though you have a blood alcohol of this. If you sleep deprive yourself this much, and, and that research is very consistent. So if you can just think about what sort of cognitive deficits occur the more alcohol you drink, those are the same things that are occurring when you're sleep deprived. Um, and one of the most important aspects of that is to think about something called the prefrontal cortex, which is the really the brain that's right by, right behind our forehead and uh, sitting on top of our eyes. That's where all of what's called our executive functioning comes from. So our ability to plan and organize. Um, there's a there's a famous uh, um, sleep researcher, or I'm sorry, um, uh, stress researcher at Stanford, Anthony Sapolsky, who um, who calls it the the simulator, and I love I I love that um, I love that uh, metaphor. It's just like a flight simulator. And so, what your prefrontal cortex allows you to do is consider something that you've never done before and try to figure out if it's a good idea. So, if I said, "Hey, Garrett, nice meeting you. Let's you know let's run out on the freeway and dodge cars," um, you've probably never done that before. But you probably wouldn't take me up on the offer either because your little simulator would say, no, that's a really bad idea. Um, and, and that's an extreme case. But when you're a little sleep deprived and you're like, you know, should I make that smart ass snarky comment back to my sergeant? Uh, you know, I'm going to because he's a prick and, you know, and I'm just going to do it, you know, or, you know, should I, you know, should I go have, you know, is it okay for me to go have a, a little intimate lunch with my boss's wife or, you know, like what, what, like these, these things that are just kind of normal day to day, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, temptations or situations that we get ourselves into, you know, if you were mildly intoxicated, what choice would you make? Well, that's the same choice you're going to make when you're sleep deprived. And in fact, we know people who are sleep deprived take more risky behavior. And we know why. I don't want to bore your guys with all the science behind it, but they take more risky behaviors. They're more likely to have an affair. They're more likely to overeat. They're more likely to overdrink. And then, just like um, with alcoholism or with alcohol intoxication, we know that if you uh, sleep deprives somebody for enough time, they lose the awareness that they're actually impaired. So when a guy goes to a bar and he has a drink and he goes, I better not have another drink because I'm going to drive home soon. And then his, you know, his friends rib him into taking another drink and he has another drink. He's like, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to have to call a cab. And then, you know, by his fourth drink, he's like, I'm fine. I can drive like no problem. It's all cool. Um, the same kind of thing happens with um, sleep deprivation. So when we do something what's called sleep adapting people, and this is like we put them in a bunker or you know blacked out military barracks, and there's nothing but a bed and a toilet in this dark, cool room, and they're in the room for 14 hours a day, and we just let them sleep as much as they want. And they'll sleep about 12 and a half hours a day when they start this, and by three or four weeks later, they're down to about seven and a half hours a night, um, you know, give or take 15 minutes. And that's what all the research consistently shows this. And then you go and you give them a baseline testing. You do this neurocognitive testing. You can also do this testing with athletic performance, um, sleep effects, endurance. It affects neuromuscular coordination. Um, it will affect sort of a one rep max kind of a lift, probably not from true muscle contractile weakness, but because of the neuro, neuromuscular coordination will be off. The timing will be off a little. Um, but you can test all these people and say, okay, here's your baseline. 
And then you restrict their sleep about two hours the next night, and you have, come back and have them test again. And they'll do worse on the test, regardless of what the test is. But they will tell you that they've done worse. When you ask them, how do you think you did? I did worse. I, I'm tired. I didn't feel good. And then the second day, they'll say the same thing. The third day, they might say the same thing. But by the fourth day, they're going to say, I'm completely adapted to this. I'm, I'm used to sleeping six hours a night now. I feel great. I have no problems. I know I did as well today as I've ever done. Uh, and there's actually you know, cases where the, you know, the researchers show them the data and go, no, look, you're, you're still getting worse. Like the decline is still on the, it's on, still on the same slope as you've always been on. And, and you know, the, the um, research subjects will argue with them and say, no, you, you messed up the test. I know I did well. And like, how much does that sound like somebody who's had too much to drink? I mean, it's just the, par- right. the parallels are just uncanny. Um, you know, but then the other side of it, when you get away from the neurocognitive aspect and, you know, the executive functioning and willpower and decision-making skills, which are all obviously important to everybody. Um, the disease and, uh, you know, metabolic disruption that comes from short sleeping or chaotic sleeping is amazing. Um, you know, if you deprive yourself of two hours of sleep in a single night, your insulin sensitivity is 30% worse the next day. All right. That's like five years of pre-diabetes, you know, working towards diabetes, like 30% in a single night. And it's not across all tissues, which some people in your audience who are in the know will argue about it. But the point is that insulin sensitivity is drastically affected. Cortisol levels, which is just, you know, one of your major stress hormones that drives appetite and blood glucose regulation, drastically changed 30 to 50% over a single night of short sleep. Testosterone production is down by 30 to 50%. Growth hormone production is down by 30 to 50%. Inflammation is higher. Immune system functioning is lower. Digestion is worse. You're going to have more stress, more anxiety, more sympathetic tone. Your hands will shake more. Your vision won't be as well. It won't be as good. And all of you know, the sequelae of all of those are pretty obvious, right? Like you're losing all these anabolic hormones. Obviously, you know, you're going to lose, you're going to lose muscle mass. You're going to increase body fat. Mother nature's biggest joke is that in men, um, you know, we have something called, we have an enzyme in our body called aromatase and females have this as well. But, um, the primary place that men have it is in their subcutaneous body fat. So like the fat that we see that we call ourselves fat when we look in the mirror, getting some love handles, I'm getting my belly fat, like whatever that's, that subcutaneous fat has this enzyme called aromatase in it. What aromatase does is it converts testosterone into estrogen. Um, and then the feedback loop to your brain uh, to let your brain know how much testosterone in your body is primarily estrogen. So it, your, your body is sort of expected to have a, a certain ratio of testosterone to estrogen, and it's primarily the estrogen telling the brain, okay, the proportion of estrogen is about right, so the testosterone is about right. Um, and so what happens is you, know, you have this, you know, self-propagating downward spiral. You have all this subcutaneous body fat that's changing your testosterone into estrogen, which is then going up to your brain and saying, oh, look how much estrogen we have. We probably have too much testosterone. Don't produce as much testosterone. Now you're not going to produce as much testosterone, which means your muscle mass is going to go down, your basal metabolic rate is going to go down, your performance is going to go down, your motivation is going to go down, and you're going to get fatter. And then, you know, it's just going to keep spiraling down and down until you, you know, get man boobs and, you know, just become kind of like a, you know, that, that useless fat old man that you always swore you were never going to be, you know? Um, 
Right. And that, you know, and that's just kind of where the, where the path leads. Um, you know, sleep deprivation, actually shift work has been, um, has been classified by the world health organization as a type two carcinogen. Um, so it's, wow. it's like up there with the asbestos exposure, you know, and, and toluene and, you know, things that we know cause cancer. Um, we know that, you know, the diabetes risk, the obesity risk, the, you know, uh, and any inflammatory disease, you know, it, all of these things are, you know, are, drastically increased and you can't say it's cause and effect because this is epidemiology but the correlation is really really strong and um, so strong is to be like the kind of correlation of saying how fast can a 400 pound you know obese person run a mile versus a lean person you can't say that they run a mile slower because of the fat uh, you know but <laughs> the correlation is very very strong I mean there's enough right. correlative data it kind of makes you go it's you know it's worth applying common sense and giving this a try at this point yeah one of the ones that scared me uh the most when i got kind of sat down and walked through some of this was uh dementia yeah and that's that's the one and i don't know where he got this percentage number but my doctor wrote down 178 percent and he circled it he said your chance of dementia goes up that much if you don't fix your sleep problem yeah well um you know alzheimer's disease is now uh by a lot a, a lot of medical bodies it's now they're starting to call it actually type 3 diabetes um and type 3 diabetes is basically just you know dysregulation uh of blood glucose in the brain and they think that it's you know it's the toxic uh environment of um too high of uh, blood glucoses and 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 vastly wire, um, varying blood glucoses as well as poor uh, insulin sensitivity and the brain that's leading to oxidation is leading to damage and it's leading to a lot of the dementia symptoms that that we know of. That's also one of the arguments um, against using cholesterol lowering drugs is because our brains are myelinated largely with with fat with cholesterol backbones. If you lower cholesterol too much you can it's it's postulated and in my mind uh, very very likely to be true that um, taking uh, statins over a long period of time predisposes you to dementia as well and again we're and we're talking about the same set of symptoms really um, you know I, I as I said earlier I don't like to divide the body up into well you know this is our you know um, you know this is my immune system and this is my nervous system and this is the cardiovascular system and this is the musculoskeletal system and this is the you know um, you know this is the brain and this is the body I mean we learn it that way as a systemized approach to make it easy but everything affects everything like literally every single thing you do has a downstream effect on everything else um, one night of short sleep changes um, epigenetics if, if your audience isn't familiar with that is basically like um, you know you have your genetics which is like this is my this is my genome these are the gene this is how my DNA sequence looks but um, it doesn't really matter that much what your DNA looks like it matters what well, what DNA segments are being exposed. So, the, you know, they have like these protein sleeves that cover them. And when they, you know, when these proteins are in certain um, 
shapes, it allows that gene to be expressed. And that's called epigenetics because those those protein exposures can change. Those cho those proteins change their shape and they express different genes. And that's epigenetics. So your environment controls which genes are being expressed. And that's why something like cancer isn't like cause and effect. You can't say, well, if you have the BRCA gene, you're going to get breast cancer. We, what you can say is that you okay, you have this BRCA gene mutation, so you're like you're more likely to have it given the same exposures as the average Joe, but you could, you know, you could not, you know, you could have a much better um, exposure, much better epigenetic expression and not have, uh, and not end up with the disease. And if you, when we sleep restrict uh, somebody, and I, I don't want to misquote this study, I think it was only two hours of sleep restriction, uh, but it could be wrong. They could have kept them up for 24 hours in a row. So let's just say that's, that's what it was to, to make, um, the case uh, for me not to overstate the case, but they sleep restricted this person for one night and well, not this person, but multiple people um, for a single night. And there were over 700 epigenetic changes from, from one night of, of sleep of short sleep or sleep deprivation, whichever it was. I mean, I challenge you to find anything else that powerful, you know, just like yeah. I challenge you to find anything else that changes your insulin sensitivity 30% in a few hours. Like that's, that is amazing. Like that in, in scientific terms, I mean, that is, you know, that that's like, you know, the difference between, you know, a Hyundai, a, a, a little Hyundai Econobox and, you know, a G550, you know, private jet. Like these are like, these are amazingly drastic changes uh, um, in a very, very short time. So, uh, so uh, we, hopefully everyone now is, is on board and convinced that they need to sleep more and they need to sleep better, but um, not always easy for us to accomplish that or to sleep during nighttime hours. I, I had an appointment recently and I was kind of explaining some of these issues and the medical assistant was shaking her head and saying, well, can't you just ask to change shifts? Oh, sure, I can ask. They're going to say no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, someone has to work at night, yeah. right? So, so how do we? Can't you uh, just get all the criminals to agree that they're right. only going to do crime during the day so that everybody can sleep, and, and preferably not on the weekends yeah. and holidays yeah. either? Exactly. That'd, be, that'd be great. <laughs> um, so, how do we mitigate and manage uh, being realistic about what we what we can and can't do? Yeah, that that's that's a great question, and and it's. Um, you know, it, it's something I talk about a lot, and and I and it's not it's not an exact answer, but I'll give you um, sort of my my spiel my spiel on this. And um, it's essentially any lifestyle modification that we're talking about, and and that's you know that's my passion in medicine. My passion in medicine is not to give people more and more pills. Um, to cover up this symptom and then you know, another pill to cover up the side effects from the other pill I gave them and you know, chase that infinitum. Like that, that doesn't excite me. What excites me is getting motivated people who see like, how much their behavior is impacting their life, their, their health, their longevity, their performance, and going, well, I can change that behavior, right? And let's, let's change that behavior. Now, with that, with that said, um, there's a, there is 
an ideal lifestyle, like if I said, here's all the ideal things that you could do that would optimize your performance, and then there's reality, right? And people have work schedules, and people have kids to get to school, and people have you have to deal with traffic, and like there's just all sorts of things that limit our ability to live the ideal lifestyle that that we need to live if we wanted to have the optimal performance, which, by the way, is just you know the sort of the the original aristocrat was the hunter gatherer i mean they you know they they had really low stress levels they you know they they hunted about 2 hours a day getting their food and the rest of the day they laid around and they had sex and they played games and they you know whatever uh just kind of had like that ideal lifestyle that we that we fantasize about kind of sitting on the beach and not doing a whole lot of anything Sounds nice. Yeah, I mean that's that's really you know what life used to be like, and now we've you know we've built in a lot of complexities, obviously, um, that prevent us from being able to live that way. You know, they went to sleep when the sun went down, and they woke up when the sun came up, and you know they ate what was available, and they learned how to hunt, and they, you know whatever. So, I mean, their life was simpler. That's how we evolved, and it's taking millions and millions of years for this body to evolve. Um, and you know that would be the ideal environment for it because that's the ideal environment. That's the environment that it developed in, and that's what we developed to live, uh, how we developed to live, um, the environment we developed this body for. And now we've taken ourselves out of that environment and created our own. And that's where things become suboptimal. So that's where kind of reality kicks in. It's like, well, I'm never going to be able to get into bed before 10 p.m. just because that's that's life. Like I have kids, I have dinner, they have homework, and you know, well, I work this shift, and there's no way I'm ever getting to bed before 10. There's no way I'm ever getting any more than six hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep. That's just it. Um, or I I have to work night shifts, so I have to sleep during the day. Okay, well. That's your reality. We know where optimal is. We know where reality is. And then we try to bridge, we try to bridge that gap with what we call mitigating factors. So it's, and you know, your folks can go to my, my website. So we don't have to talk about all this for an hour. Um, but you can find this information, um, largely anywhere on the internet. But, you know, we, we basically, we talk about optimizing sleep. We're talking about two things. We're talking about what, uh, light saturation, our, our eyes, there's some ganglion in the back of our eyes that use blue light to give us the cue of when we should be sleeping. That entrains what we call our circadian rhythm, which most of your people, your audience has probably heard of. Um, and then the other thing we're talking about is stimulation. Um, so neurocognitive stimulation can actually override the chemical changes in our brain that are making us feel sleepy. That's why you can feel kind of tired and sleepy all day. Uh, you know, swear to yourself, you're just going to go straight home from work and go to bed. Uh, probably not anymore, but when you're younger, you know, when you didn't have a family, you could have done that. Um, and then your friends talk you into going to happy hour. And then, you know, you, you have a couple of drinks, which are actually depressants and should make you feel more tired. But now you're socially engaged and you're checking out potential mates and you're having a good time talking with people. And all of a sudden you're not sleepy anymore. And that, you know, that we can do that very same thing just by, um, you know, working on our computers, you know, answering emails, uh, you know, doing, you know, doing our taxes, you know, paying bills, like right up until bedtime, you're stimulating your brain awake. So, you know, we, we mitigate by decreasing the light in your eyes. And that comes from lots of ways. There's 
computer programs that will take the blue light out of your screens. Uh, when the sun goes down, there's you know blue blocking shields you can put on your smartphones. There's uh, blue blocking glasses that are just like essentially gaming glasses. They filter out blue light. Uh, there's special light bulbs you can put in your house. You can just dim the light in your house. Um, all of those types of things, decreasing the light saturation. And then, of course, if you're a shift worker and you're going to you know, be going home uh, during you know, morning, you know, morning sunlight hours and you, you know you're going home to go to sleep, you have to have like a really good pair of sunglasses to block that light out. You have to get to your house and keep the light levels low, give your body time to sort of entrain to, to get yourself to sleep during the day. Um, and, you know, there, again, there's a million little uh, tricks and gadgets out there for, the, for that, but the, you know, the basic concept is just block as much light coming into your eyes three to four hours before bed as you can, and then decrease the stimulation. Um, and that's, you know, all the things I talked about, but anything else, I mean, you know, getting in a, a heated debate with your spouse, you know, before bedtime is going to make your sleep worse. Um, you know, disciplining your children right before bedtime is going to make your sleep worse. Uh, you know, any, anything that kind of ramps you up. Um, so, you know, it's really creating a sleep time, a bedtime ritual, having a completely dark room, having, you know, getting rid of the electronics in your room, keeping your room cool. One of the natural cues for sleeping at night is having a lower body temperature um, and then having sort of like a bedtime ritual, just like we do with little kids, you know, where we're, you know, we bathe them and brush their teeth and read their stories and then, you know, they cuddle their toy in bed or whatever like adults kind of need that same ritualization to the extent that you can and then if you have chaotic schedules like law enforcement and military and lots of other professions then you have to do more mitigation um, which includes things like you know taking supplements to help and train your your um, your circadian rhythm which is you know the supplement that I developed working with the seals which exactly was that to get them off of ambient help them and train their circadian rhythm you can do things like heart rate variability training or um, uh, you know biofeedback anything that kind of lowers sympathetic tone meditation breathing exercises um, yoga um, tai chi like all these types of things that can kind of lower sympathetic tone uh, don't have a lot of, you know, we probably don't have time to go into why that's important, but that's one of the big uh, downstream negative effects of being sleep deprived is having a lot of sympathetic tone, which leads to anxiety and accelerated heart rate and blood pressure and all this other stuff. Um, and then taking naps when you can. Um, I, you know, I finally talked to the military. I finally talked to SEAL teams into value, valuing naps while I was there. You know, obviously we get, we have SEAL training buds where we go for an entire week without sleep. So they're, uh, they're yeah, they're, 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 it's, it's definitely a culture that's uh, probably worse than the late, you know, than the general um, industrialized world beliefs and, and that, you know, sleep is a luxury. It's, it's even worse in the SEAL teams. Um, yeah. But you can actually, there's, there's actually ways to increase and enhance your performance by taking naps, even when you're adequately slept. Um, but if you're, if you're sleep deficient, naps definitely mitigate, you know, you can, you can restore a lot of that prefrontal cortex functioning we were talking about and like a 20, 20 minute nap, right? Like it, and that's something that most people could find a way to do. Um, and you can add series series of that. Um, and then, you know, when I deal with law enforcement, 
guys who work shift work, you know, they've been working shift work for 20 years and they have families and they have kids and, you know, they say, well, the only time I'm going to get to spend with my kids is when I come home. So I don't want to go to sleep right then. Um, and that, you know, there's all this hemming and hawing about how to, you know, how, you know, whether they stay on the schedule all the time and, uh, you know, and, and that gets really complex, but the, the basic rule of thumb is the faster you can pay that sleep debt back. Um, it's just like credit card debt. The faster you pay it back, the less expensive it is. Um, so the less deleterious it is to your body, the faster you can restore that sleep. And that's done by being in a cool, dark, quiet, non-stimulating environment. Um, and, you know, having your nutrition in order and having your activity in order and having your stress in order, your stress control in order. You know, they, they, these are all tools that are parts of it, and I'm happy to come back on your show later and kind of talk about those things piecemeal. And and yeah. guys can go to my you know my sites and um, and and read that stuff as well, and you can find it on other uh, other places on the internet as well. But um, yeah, I mean, un- unfortunately, there's no real magic answer to it. It's it's uh, if if you uh, the farther you are from sort of the ideal lifestyle, the more there's little mitigators you're going to need to employ to uh, instill your, you know, in, to give yourself the best chance of, you know, a long, healthy, happy life. Um, and again, that's just going to be a, a personal choice. So, you know, like how, you know, what's your tolerance for, you know, having little gadgets to control your heart rate variability and what's your tolerance for, you know, you know, finding a place to nap, what's your tolerance for changing your diet, what's your tolerance for your changing your exercise. Uh, again, these are all sort of personal choices and there's no right or wrong. You just kind of got to figure out where the Venn diagram balances out for you between, uh, you know, longevity and performance and, um, and health, you know, like kind of where, where's your middle ground, where's your ideal point between all of those things. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, a, it's like anything else in this, journey to optimization or fitness is just priorities and how how you juggle those and manage those i guess um you talk, you mentioned supplementation or uh and, and i wanted to ask you about that i i seem to sleep really well when i have a magnesium supplement yep. which i had been recommended yep. um wanted to know what you recommend but also you talk a little bit about uh the the sleep cocktail that you developed yeah so you know there again i i uh you know i i approached all of this just uh, simply from a, um, you know, a, a basic physiology standpoint, when I started uh, educating myself on sleep and how that was affecting the hormones and moods and all, you know, leading to all the issues that these guys had, um, and, you know, and you know, doctors don't learn anything about sleep in medical school. Like, um, I, I had somebody tweet me, uh, send me a tweet recently that said. Hey, we're making progress. You know, my medical school uh, has now implemented one one sleep lecture. You know, during during the four years of training, I'm like, right, right on, man. We're we're halfway there. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we you know we learned nothing about sleep, um, and so I had to go educate myself. And and one of the things that you know, probably most of your audience has heard about, um, but this was kind of novel to me. This was back in 2008. It wasn't nearly the buzz it is now is that vitamin D3 deficiency is highly correlated to poor sleep. Um, and I said, well, you know, the only place, you know, the more I researched it, there, there's only one place to get vitamin D3, and that's from the sun. Um, you know, all, all of these, you know, every, any kind of vitamin D that you get in food, you know, dairy products and milk and all that type of stuff, 
uh, that's vitamin D2. That still has to be converted in your skin to vitamin D3. So you can only get it by exposing your skin to sunlight or by taking a supplement, right? Uh, and so I thought, well, you know, these guys, these seals, a lot of their problems are starting when they're forward deployed. So they're working at night, they're sleeping during the day. Even when they are going outside during the day, they're covered from head to toe and, you know, and all their kit. Um, and so they're all vitamin D3 deficient. And sure enough, their labs all showed that they were. And so I thought, oh, I'll give them all vitamin D3. That'll come back, everything. All their, They'll sleep fine. And I'm a genius. I figured it all out. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it turned out that it worked a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, I learned a little more and found out, well, you know, actually um, – all, all vitamin D3 reactions, and uh, vitamin D3 is actually a hormone, not a vitamin, but um, all, you know, all of the reactions that vitamin D3 is involved in requires magnesium. I'm like, oh, all right, well, let's give them magnesium. We'll give them some natural calm and some vitamin D3, and now I've solved it. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of went on like that, <laughs> on and on and on, until I came up with sort of all the ingredients that I have now in my sleep formulation. Um, but when we talked earlier about sort of being there being sort of two pathways involved in getting adequate sleep, one being decreasing the light in your eyes. And the reason for decreasing your, the light in your eyes was to entrain your body, uh, your circadian rhythm to the time zone that you're in. Um, and then the other thing was decreasing stimulation to the brain. Um, and what ordinarily slows, kind of quiets our brain around sleep is um, a hormone that's also produced or a neurotransmitter that's also produced when, um, when the sunlight goes down is called GABA. And it's just capital G-A-B-A. -A, uh, and it's gamma amino butyric acid for anyone who wants to know. Um, and that actually goes into our neocortex, like our big human brain, and it kind of slows everything down and makes us less aware of our environment, makes us you know, less stimulated by our environment. And that's what we're overcoming when we stimulate our, our body. So um, the, when we decrease the light in our eyes, uh, not only does GABA kind of slow down our brain, but melatonin, the production of melatonin, um, decreases a lot of that sympathetic tone, those adrenal tones, and it initiates a lot of other cascades in our brain to make us feel like, you know, going to sleep and drifting off to sleep. So all of my supplement is is all of the substrates, like all of the ingredients involved um, in making melatonin, and then a very small dose of melatonin. And the reason the melatonin dose is so small. It's because like any other hormone, if you give too much of it, you decrease your, sensi your sensitivity to it, and then you can run into deficits even having normal amounts. And there's some speculation that you might even downregulate your own production of melatonin if you take too much of it. Um, so this is a very, uh, it, you know, most of your audience is probably familiar with uh, the, the little uh, colloquialism of the tryptophan coma around Thanksgiving. Um, Tryptophan is an amino acid and uh, that it's very rich in turkey. It's rich in other foods, but um, we overeat turkey. We get a lot of tryptophan. Tryptophan becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan. Then with the help of vitamin D3 and magnesium, 5-hydroxytryptophan um, uh, becomes serotonin, which we know is, a, is associated with alertness, but also mood. Um, and then serotonin can be converted into melatonin and it shuts down sort of our adrenal function and our stress hormones and it makes us feel like going to sleep. So um, 
that pathway, all of those ingredients I just listed out, that's what's in my sleep supplement. And then there, it's a GABA derivative that can that can cross the blood-brain barrier. If you just put regular GABA in your body, it, it doesn't get into your brain because of um, you know kind of a little shield your body has between your brain. So this is just a form of GABA that can cross the brain, and that's it. Um, I mean, it's uh, it, it's nothing. Uh, it, there's no kind of physiologic trick in there. There's nothing amazingly uh, novel about it. It's just supplementing what tends to be deficient in, pa- in people, and it's encouraging that pathway to go um, and giving you just a little, you know, a little dusting of melatonin to initiate all of that um, cascade. And so those, I mean, those are all the supplements I recommend for people, um, whether they take my product or they want to go piecemeal it together. Um, and that's what the SEALs did for, you know, five years. They were going out and buying these pills and these drops and these powders and, you know, going to four or five different stores. And they, you know, they've been bitching at me for years to say, why don't you just make this into one, one product? And I'm like, I'm trying. Uh, so just five short years later, you know, we finally got it all together and, and made a product out of it. But it, you know, it's the same thing they've been doing for, for forever. And, you know, I, I don't have, um, as far as I know, unless uh, some seals starts blogging that, uh, that I'm lying about this. As far as I know, I don't have a single, I don't have a single failed case uh, where guys who wanted to get off of Ambien weren't able to get off of Ambien by using the supplement instead and you know, doing some lifestyle changes. So, fantastic. Yeah. Where uh, where can people go to find out more about that? That's uh, th- that site is actually Sleep Cocktails with an S. Uh, sleepcocktails.com. That name's probably going to change. Uh, just, and to be clear, that's not gin and tonic. It's not gin and tonic, no. And, and that's one of the reasons it's probably going to change. It's probably a bad name. It, it, it just sort of, uh, it'd be, the, you know, the SEALs just sort of nicknamed it that. Like, you know, every, everything gets a nickname. And it just, it's, you know, they just started calling it the Parsley Cocktail. Um, and so I just called it the Sleep Cocktail when I released it. But um, it, it turns out to be a terrible marketing name. So that's probably going to change. <laughs> it's sleepcocktailswithans.com. Or you can just go to my site, docparsley.com. And if you go to uh, the shop in there, you can open it up. And that will lead you to the, the main site for the supplement. And there's you know a couple of, a couple of thousand words of uh, you know my explanation behind the product. And then there's... You know, probably a hundred frequently asked questions and all sorts of stuff. You could read. You could probably read on that site for an hour. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of good information yeah. on there. A lot of the stuff we don't have time for today, too. And it's doc d o c parsley, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Just, just like the herb, p a r s l e y. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate your time and going uh, into the weeds on some of this because I think it's helpful to understand. Uh, we're a curious bunch, and it's helpful to understand the cause behind the effect. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it's and it also it sounds like they're waiting to pave your uh, your living room there. So. Yeah, yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, you know, I just to just so your audience knows, I mean, if they want to reach out to me, um, you know, as a doctor, I'm not supposed to play favorites, but you know, I I I definitely do. I had the um, you know, it's not lip service at all. I have the highest respect for law enforcement and first responders and military and, you know, all, all of DOJ. And I, you know, I, I think that they're just, um, an incredibly underappreciated, uh, group of people. Um, and I know how rough, I know how rough they have it. I know how rough you guys have it. And, um, you know, I, 
I, uh, you know, I take every opportunity I can when I'm invited to do lectures for, uh, you know, any one of those groups. I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I'll bend heaven and earth to get those things done, and I'll, I'll respond to uh, as many emails as I possibly can every day from, from uh, those guys, uh, all you guys, and uh, all the men and women involved in those uh, forces. It's um, yeah, I, to me, it's paramount. We have to we have to start there. If we can't if we can't fix those selected groups, then I think the over the chance of fixing America as a whole or you know the industrialized world as a whole is just kind of uh, very grim. <laughs> very grim. If, if we can't get these organizations uh, in in line, then and I think uh, the battle's probably lost already. Well, we certainly appreciate your support. That does mean a lot. And, you know, we'd love to have you back on at a later date to go even deeper into some of these other things. I didn't even talk or ask about adrenal fatigue or some other things. So some other time we'll uh, yeah. we'll go further down. Yeah, we, you know, get get a sense of what your audience really likes. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be happy to come back on. Um, you know, and let's, uh, you know, let, let's give your your audience a little a discount code or something. You, you can come up with whatever whatever sounds good to you you want to put the squad room in in the discount code area or something and and we'll we'll work out something for you guys excellent yeah i'll I'll, uh, give details on that in the in the in the post show recording here that it's about to come up in a second so thanks for your time uh you know i know you got a busy schedule and it means a lot that you took so much to uh be with us thank you you're welcome thank you for having me on All right, so there we have it, episode 10 of The Squadron. Thanks for listening. So for Doc Parsley's discount that we were talking about during the show, you go to www.sleepcocktails, that's with an S, plural, dot com, sleepcocktails.com. Enter The Squad Room at checkout, all lowercase, The Squad Room, and you'll get 10% off of your order. Uh, and it's good for, I believe, 60 days from the launch of this show. So if you uh, are interested in trying this out, and uh, I've done a version of this with uh, magnesium and vitamin D, and it helps me immensely, um, it will be, uh, it's, it's definitely worth trying. I'm going to be ordering mine today. Episode 11 will be out in a couple of weeks. I'm on my way to Hawaii for a nice, well-earned vacation, if you ask me. So uh, keep uh, listening. And as always, if you feel... Uh, like you were able to, please leave a review on iTunes or on Stitcher and let us know what you think about the show. You can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at The Squad Room. And our email is thesquadroompodcast at gmail.com. All right. Take care. Thanks and stay safe. <laughs>